0: Hey, DevOps and SRE folks. Do you feel like you may be spending too much on log management and observability? Maybe you're struggling to scale your ELK stack, or you feel like you're spending too much because you are indexing logs and metrics that you just don't need. Check out logs.io, that's L-O-G-Z.io, a fully managed service and unified platform based on the leading open source solutions for observability, log management and cloud SIEM based on ELK, and infrastructure monitoring based on Grafana, a cost-effective open source alternative at the scale you need. To give it a try for yourself, sign up for a 14 day free trial today at logs.io, that's L O G Z.io, slash cloudcast, and for your chance to receive a free logs.io t shirt. That's logs.io slash cloudcast.
1: Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world.
0: Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well, you know, and as the old saying goes, April showers bring May flowers. And what do Mayflowers bring? Well, they bring earnings season. Yet we're breaking out the bad jokes. We have been uh, quarantined now for a couple of months, and uh, it is earnings season. And not just earnings season, but public cloud earnings season. So both uh, or all three of the three major cloud providers, Google Microsoft and Amazon announced their earnings here in the last week or so. So let's kind of dig into that a little bit as our cloud news of the week. We'll start with Google, who went first. Uh, Google announced their cloud revenue of about $2.78 billion for the quarter. Um, now, of course, this includes both GCP cloud as well as the uh, G Suite of services. So uh, up about 52 53%. So Google continuing to grow and uh, beginning to grow you know, more into the enterprise. Uh, Microsoft announced their Azure numbers, and Azure, of course, as we've said over and over, is probably the most complicated – or actually, Microsoft is the most complicated one to sort of uh, sort out because they lump a bunch of things into their intelligent cloud business, and they include everything from – you know Azure to GitHub to uh, their you know cloud server business to uh, Office 365. So, but they were at 12.3 billion up 61 percent. Uh, the Azure business at least was up 61 percent. So 12.3 billion gets lumped into Intelligent Cloud for Microsoft. And again, that includes a number of things uh, beyond just Azure. So again, tougher to figure out exactly how big the Azure business is, but uh, it is uh, you know you got to imagine the you know a large portion of of that amount. And then finally, Amazon announced the AWS earnings number, and we now have our first $10 billion per quarter cloud. So AWS is the first one to get to $10.2 billion for the quarter. That's up. 33%. Thirty-three percent. Um, so, you know, Azure or AWS continues to really sort of be the the largest public cloud. Um, Microsoft is very close. We have very much a a one-two race. Um, people were wondering if Seattle would continue to be the uh, center of the computing universe in this next generation. Well. It is. It continues to be the center of the computing universe. It was Microsoft for the 80s and 90s and is now both Amazon AWS and, and Microsoft Azure in the 2000, I guess, 20s now, 2010s and 20s. So, uh, you know, big growth from all three of the cloud providers. Um, obviously, we're sort of seeing one and two break away from Google. Uh, but Google is continuing to grow, and we 're seeing uh, you know a little more enterprise adoption and some more interesting things from them as well so good to see all three of them grow growing, uh, not unexpected, especially uh, you know with um, you know more people doing some some work at home and changing the uh, application usage patterns, but uh, you know, kind of the trends that we, we expected to see from all these folks, um, and we will be tracking again as we always do. You know, the capex costs that go behind the massive out outs of these clouds. So, with that, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to get to cloud news of the week and have a really interesting uh, interview this week. You know, we don't always get a chance to talk to sort of direct end customers and end users, but this week we have a really interesting interview with some folks who have not only been doing very very interesting things with microservices, but have been willing to talk about uh, both their success and their struggles. So really excited about that. And we will be with that right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. Are you transitioning your team to work from home? Are you managing a gazillion SSH keys, database passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Well, meet StrongDM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, you can easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access, automate onboarding and offboarding, and move people within roles. You can even grant temporary access that automatically expires to on-call teams. Your admins will get full auditability into anything anybody does. When they connect, what queries they run, and what commands are typed. This means full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, this means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. That's StrongDM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com cloudcast. Today's Cloudcast is brought to you by Datadog, a full-stack monitoring platform that integrates with over 400 technologies like Gremlin, PagerDuty, AWS Lambda, Spinnaker, and many more. With rich visualizations and algorithmic alerts, Datadog can help you monitor the effects of chaos experiments, identify weaknesses, and improve the reliability of your systems. Visit datadog.com cloudcast to start a free 14-day trial and receive one of Datadog's famously cozy t-shirts. That's datadog.com slash cloudcast. And we're back. And folks, you know, one of the biggest requests that we get all the time from our audience is they say, you know, we, we love the fact that you talk to... Uh, entrepreneurs that you talk to, startups, you talk to CTOs, you talk to, to VCs, and you know, different people from around the industry. But one of the biggest requests we get all the time is, hey, you know, can you talk to some people that actually put this technology into practice, that use it every day, that that live with the good parts and live with the bad parts? And so, you know, today, as part of you know a lot of the work that we we've always done ongoing with the O'Reilly folks, is we're very very lucky today to have somebody who uh, not only has been living with a lot of these very cool technologies for a while but also, you know, actively out talking about it, talking about the goods and the bads and so very excited to have Sarah Wells who is technical director for operations and reliability at the Financial Times over in the UK. Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Hi there. Thank you. So uh, I'm delighted to be on it.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. So, like I said, we we get a chance to talk to, you know, kind of technology experts uh, oftentimes on the on the vendor side uh, quite a bit. Uh, we don't always get a chance to talk to folks um, on the you know, sort of user side, if you will. Sometimes it's, well, we're trying to keep information you know, within our four walls and we don't want to talk about it. But we'd love to kind of get started talking about your background. Not only have you been um, you know, doing this, living it for a while, but you've been talking about it. So give us a little bit of your background, um, you know, how you got to where you were and some of the things that you're really passionate about these days.
1: Sure. Um, So, I've been doing software development for pretty much 20 years. Uh, I didn't uh, do a degree in computing. I did a degree in uh, the history and philosophy of science, which is pretty uh, unrelated. But I went and did a – I worked in science publishing for a while. And then about 21 years ago, I went back and did a conversion course. So, I did a master's in IT. Hmm. and it was a really great move actually I, I realized I wanted a job that was challenging because it was new problems to solve and I think that computing absolutely gives you that software development gives you that and I started off working in a consultancy for about four years which is quite a good first job I think as a developer because you have to try and do new things all the time right when, then I went and worked for a uh company doing uh, financial services software. So it was a very small vendor. We were building very custom software for for a very particular market. It was back office derivatives trading software. And then about nine years ago, I left that and joined the Financial Times. So obviously the Financial Times is one of the world's leading business news organizations. And In the nine years that I've been there, there's been massive change in the way the FT works. I would say when I joined that we had really smart people, but we weren't leading where media technology went. Over that period of time, we've gone from being the people who would go to conferences and think this sounds exciting to being people who actually go and talk at conferences, and that's been a fantastic uh, experience. And it is exactly that thing where we're trying things that other people haven't maybe tried yet. We've learned a lot from it, and we really enjoy going out there and talking about what we've discovered.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that's fantastic. I know, uh, you know, we we cover open source and communities, and and you know, kind of this this more free flow of information, it would be fantastic to kind of get a little bit of insight. You know, you said you used to go to the conferences to learn and you thought things mm-hmm. were interesting. And then now you're on sort of the other side of the fence sometimes. What do you think made that flip? Was it just, um, you know, experience working with things, confidence? Was there something that, that kind of you know, wanted to make you be out talking about it more than, than listening to it?
1: well i think it was actually it was actually a complete change in the in where the ft was our culture and and how far you know we, we started being ahead of other people and it was partly because we were going to conferences and and hearing about the new technologies and then we we basically started to do a transformation probably 5 or 6 years ago to make ourselves ready to adopt a more devops culture so to be able to a spin up a VM in minutes rather than it taking weeks to buy and configure a, a server, and it was natural once we started to feel we had something to share where we were aware that we were doing things early uh, to go out and talk about it because it's 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 fantastic for um, recruiting. Yeah. You know it's much easier to find people to join the Financial Times if we 're out there talking and people tend to think because we're a business newspaper they tend to expect us to be a very staid uh, organization in terms of software development we 're not right. so getting out there and talking about that uh, is is really powerful
0: yeah and that, and that's one of the things I know as I talk to different companies that um, you know I, I often have to tell them uh, you know at some point you you pick your technology stack and you start doing some things but At some point in, especially if you're you're trying to transform your business, you're trying to to do things differently than you did before. Like, at some point, uh, their job um, becomes as much like my day job, which is you know talking about technology and software and trying to convince people to change. And they kind of look at me. There's a point where they go, "Wait a minute, no, no, no." And then and then you go, "No, you're you're trying to encourage people to to take a chance to realize that you know you can do bigger things that." Uh, you know, you can go out and find good people, and so it's it's interesting to see that happen in in reality as well. So very very cool. Um, you know, about you know over the last you know three four years, you've been out uh, much more publicly talking about the things you've done, and, and one of the topics that you've been really highlighting is. Is your use of microservices and kind of this this evolution um, that you've had towards microservices, I, you know, can you give us a, a kind of a sense of of how that evolution happened inside of uh, inside of the Financial Times and some of the reasons, the thought process for moving towards you know, using microservices more uh, more readily?
1: Uh yes. So uh, we started uh, building systems out of microservices very very early, probably twenty thirteen. I mean, this is before. The the Sam Newman book was produced. We we were very early adopters, and uh, at that point, I was a senior developer, so I'm not I don't I wasn't really involved in the decisions about why we started to take steps to allow us to do it. But I know that the first thing that allowed us to adopt microservices was was an investment in automation, an investment in being able to provision servers and deploy code uh, through a pipeline uh, Mm -hmm. very simply. Because you can't do microservices unless you can spin up a new service in minutes. Right. So that was a precondition, and that was available, and that made a massive difference. And then we were starting to build some new big systems. So we were rebuilding our content uh, publishing platform. We were rebuilding our subscription uh, platform. So we we have a paywall. It's critical to our business, so you want to invest money and build something that works. So both of those systems, and we were rebuilding our website, and all of these, the teams felt that microservices was going to give us an advantage. And it comes down to um, being able to release lots of small changes. So our previous um, publishing and website we had to freeze the website when we were going to do a release uh, which meant we could people would still read it but you couldn't publish new content and obviously for a newspaper that's difficult so we would only do releases uh once a month on a saturday when there wasn't much business news going on the it was absolutely so important to us to be able to release code all the time and we thought that microservices would give us that ability and it did it totally did it's it's a complicated thing to operate, but it decouples so much that it allows you to make those small changes.
0: Yeah, no, and and it makes sense. And I, I'm I'm glad you sort of highlighted one one thing that people may not pick up as a as a small nuance. So, you know, you you said, "Hey, I was I was there as a, a senior engineer, and and maybe you weren't necessarily making all of the key decisions, but it, it sounds like you had some business context at the time that was." you know, our industry is changing, our industry is going through some, um, some things that we're not totally sure how it's going to, how it's going to play out, we have some ideas of, of maybe what's going to happen. But it was, it was important for you as a business to now have this capability, the ability to, uh, to test lots of different options out there. And, and that ended up driving what you were doing. It wasn't just, hey, we went and saw, you know, Sam talk about microservices, and therefore, we just adopted this technology.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's, You should adopt the technologies. It's really easy to get enthusiastic about technologies and think, that sounds amazing, let's use it. You've got to have a reason for doing it. And the reasons, we had a couple of reasons about, uh, we thought the quality of releases would be better if we were doing more of them. But one thing was around experimentation. So uh, when we built the new version of the FT's website, we built A-B testing in from scratch and we run lots of experiments. But you can't run lots of experiments unless you uh, have the ability to release code really quickly. So you've got to be able to release thousands of, of code releases a year. We do far more than that to be able to do that experimentation. And that lets you try things out because uh, it's one of those things is that people don't like to invest a lot of money and then say that didn't work.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, you could, if someone has spent three months working on a feature, it'll go live. And even if your, your metrics are telling you it's not successful, it'll be really hard to persuade people to turn it off. But if it took... A couple of hours, you've got a really good chance of of saying it's not having the impact on the metric we wanted it to impact, so we'll turn it off.
0: Right, right, yeah, and no, we do that. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm curious if you remember, uh, you know, at the time you were you were starting to make these these different changes, which obviously had there was a technology technology component to it, but there was probably also a a, a cultural change component. Do you remember some of the the first things that you did that? Kind of made this this new approach successful. That the things that would allow you to test more frequently or make changes more frequently.
1: Uh, so the the first thing it was the investment in automation, um, and the 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 thing that so, so I'd I'd say that it like zero downtime deployments or having that as a kind of key aim made a massive difference. So setting up your architecture so you can release code without having to do any kind of code freeze, um, that was that was really important. And the culture that went alongside that, which was that code freezes are a really bad idea, <laughs> we should generally not be doing them. We, right. we want it to be just normal um, to release small changes that you understand uh, what they mean. So, so those that and that actually is very something that engineers really like. You don't want to be waiting a month to be able to make a, a code change, because by the time that happens, you've sort of forgotten it. You've moved on to other stuff. So there's something really nice as an engineer to be able to do that. What's interesting is we kind of had. Um, a small group within the FT that were doing this sort of thing early, and we'd had a, it had convinced the business that they would rather have lots of small changes happening and sometimes having to be fixed in live, rather than having some rigorous process that, you know, in theory gave you really well tested releases that go out.
0: Right. Um, right. Yeah. They con-
1: like, sorry.
0: No, I was going to say that 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 always seems to me like the the biggest. Call uh, it kind of cultural change because you know then people are like okay well who's who's responsible if it doesn't you know they they it, it sort of becomes like worst case scenario who's responsible it doesn't go well because they're just not used to that level of 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 change their sort of frequency of changes
1: yes and and I think you you do to prove you have to prove that if it went wrong and you tell us about it we can fix it quickly we can roll it back we can make a change to it and I think our journalists they They are used to the idea that if they say to us, "This thing doesn't look right, it, it will get fixed very quickly right and um, that is that is an important thing. I think we, we had a com- we've had conversations we We have an internal tech conference that we've been running for the last four or five years, which is a really nice way of sharing what we all understand and coming up with sort of common view of what we think. And a good few years ago, someone said, "You know we're not a hospital or a power station. No one is going to die if we release code." that makes the makes one of our pages look a bit weird.
0: Right, right.
1: So people are starting to realize that this is not critical. Now, clearly, there are things that we want to be very careful about. Security, we want to be very careful about sure, that. Sure. We don't want to do anything that is going to cause us GDPR issues. So we're really careful with personal information.
0: Yeah, no, I, I obviously uh, that's one of those ones that uh, you you make a mistake, you may end up on the on the front page of your own uh, your own publication if, uh, yeah, exactly. if something goes wrong. Exactly. Um, I, I'm curious if you're able to share. You know, I, I found that some of the companies that um, you know ultimately are, are probably more successful than others. Um, you know, do a lot of things similarly. You just mentioned that you run an internal sort of tech conference. Um, you know, what what's involved with that? It's uh, you know, how, how do you you know who who speaks? What types of topics, or do you talk about? How many people get engaged? Is that is that something you can share a little bit about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, a Victoria Morgan Smith who works at the FT published a book about this with Matthew Skelton about running internal conferences. So we're very we're very willing to talk about uh, the kind of things that we do. Um, but basically, it's been different each time because every year we think about what is what is it we're trying to get out of it. So the first time we did it which was about maybe 4 years ago the the real reason was we'd gone to a conference about microservices actually and uh, a whole bunch of us had gone and we came back and said you know they they weren't really talking about anything we didn't already know. I got more value by talking to from talking to my colleagues who I don't normally talk to in the office because they're in different parts of the organization. And we said that to the CTO and he said well we should we should run a conference so it was about proving that we had a lot of expertise in our our organization but the most the most recent one this year we've recently set up a second engineering hub in sofia in in bulgaria Mm -hmm. and so this year's conference was can we show that the london and sofia um, teams are both part of one global development team and make sure that we have it in two locations that are, that we have contributions from both sides and you know, make everyone feel like they are one engineering team. And so that was a different aim. But it's generally people uh, within the company talking. We do some lightning talks. We normally try and do something that's a bit more fun, maybe a quiz or, or something like that. We um, have longer talks about particular topics. And this time, this year, for the first time, we actually did a call for papers and asked people to volunteer. And I'm encouraged um, some people to to take part in that as well
0: interesting interesting yeah and uh, we can we can put a link to the show notes uh, to the book if it's uh, something that's published a lot of people I think would, would love to kind of dig into to uh, you know how you run it and, and a really a lot of the thought process behind it um, you know you you work in a world where uh, a lot of what what you do obviously is you're reporting the financial success or you know sometimes failures of, of other companies uh, you know measurements of, of how well they've done how well they've grown how does your team you know measure your successes or how do you use data to sort of set your next set of goals and then how do you how do you communicate that to, to your internal teams
1: so um, there's probably two two parts to this uh, one is that the fts technology department uh, adopted OKRs, so objectives and key results at the beginning of last year. We do them quarterly. So we will uh, set my, – my group would set maybe three, three to five goals and for each of those, three to five key results. And they need to be something that's measurable where you know whether you achieved it or not. And within my team, we like it to be something where there's a scale and we can automate and see how we're doing. We like it to be, okay, we currently have um, – 50 critical systems and we want to make sure that the documentation is really good and so we want to be down to five that have problems in the documentation and we want to be able to measure that so so that helps quite a lot to try and think about what we're doing in terms of how we're going to measure it but we're really aware that we're a team that has to has to talk to our clients who are developers in the organizations I, i work on the operations reliability team we're building tooling to help developers and operational staff um, operate things and build things quicker. So we need to be talking to people about what are their problems and what would they, you know, what do they need from us? And we need to be measuring whether they use the things that we build as well.
0: Interesting. And and I'm curious, you know, one of the things that's uh, always interesting with OKRs is is the language that's used and the, the measurement and, and, you know, sometimes people try and game the systems and so forth. <laughs> I'm curious, do you find that the, the language and the numbers you use are more um, kind of in the context of your customers, you know, the journalist or, or other teams, or are they kind of, uh, you know, inward facing to your group? So your group goes, oh, okay, that, that totally makes sense to me. Or is it some blend of the two?
1: So it actually changes because we have them at multiple levels. So at the top level for the whole of our product and technology department, they are presented in language that should be understandable by anyone. And they should be talking about things that people, other parts of the business care about. And then when it comes down to the operations and reliability group, um, we'll be talking about things that we know other parts of technology care about. When we get down to the team level, it might be much less outward focused and it might be something that people outside that team don't necessarily understand what that means. But somehow it all gets mapped together so That's that right. you can map the team thing to the group thing to the to the whole department thing. Um, and and actually the other thing about adopting them that was, one of the things that I liked about how it was introduced was people people who were introducing it to us said, you're going to get it wrong. Yep. The first attempt will be bad. Yep. And then absolutely. the next quarter, you'll learn from that. And it's still the case. We're on our fifth set, no, sixth set now. And we still get to the end of a quarter and go, we didn't choose the right measure on that one. But we we get better every time on it. So, uh, And, you know, it doesn't work for everything. We tried doing them for individuals. We didn't find that as easy. We kind of left that optional. People find value from it. They can do it. But the team ones in particular, I find really good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they they well they nothing else they they bring people together to to ask the question like are we measuring the right thing? Are we aligned to the right goals, you know? Do, you know, are, are we realistic in our time frames and, and all those sort of things. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. Um, one of the things that, that you talk a lot about in the context of of microservices is is this idea of, you know, who who owns a service and and you know, what what is the life cycle of a service talk like, uh, you know look like? Can you give us a sense of kind of how you you think about you know, how maybe is it how big a team should be that owns a service or, you know, how long should they own a service? Do you keep them around if, if they're no longer used, those types of things?
1: Yeah, yes. Uh, so I I think and I'm really coming from an operational point of view on this, but if you've got a service that is still being used, some team needs to own it because there is no there's no there's no uh, possible service that doesn't need some level of maintenance. You know, you might have to upgrade the programming language, you might have to patch a security vulnerability. There's a bunch of stuff that might happen or something might go wrong. So and it has to be owned by a team because people will say, Oh, you know, this person knows this service. But when they leave the company you miss you miss that transition sometimes. So we generally say that a team has to own a service. And sometimes you have debates with that team because they say, Well, none of us worked on it. Well, but you still own it. You're going to have to take some level of active ownership and start to understand it. Now, it's not easy. But when you've got thousands of services, we've got we have thousands of systems at the FT. You have to have some way of saying I can look it up and I can see that's who I talk to about it. Right, right. So my team is working on we've we've built a thing which is called BizOps. It's business operations. It's got uh, is built on a graph database. It contains our systems linked to teams linked to people linked to products um we want to start building dependencies between them and modeling that so we can see where something critical depends on something that isn't very that isn't very resilient so there's a bunch of stuff there that we we work on to try and represent that information but the key thing is ownership and i think we've got an agreement generally within our department that things should be owned
0: Right. And, and I'm curious, you know, one of the things I I see with, uh, you know, in talking to different companies is, you know, there's always enthusiasm to build something new. Um, that enthusiasm tends to wean as it becomes just maintenance of it. But, but maybe more importantly, the owning the budget that goes with sort of maintaining that any tips or tricks that you've seen in terms of how that conversation goes of, uh, it was, it was cool at first and now it's just, you know, ongoing (laughs) budget sort of, we don't want to deal with it anymore.
1: Well, I think that that is a that is a difficult thing. Um, We've got uh, six groups within technology at the Financial Times that have very clear things that they own. So it's usually pretty obvious that this particular system sits within your group and then it's up to you to either maintain it or decommission it. Yeah. It's still extremely difficult to persuade people to turn things off. Right. So we're trying. We've been trying for the last year or so to talk about total cost of ownership. To talk about how much does it cost us to pay for the the software that this is running on, to have a certain number of people able to support it, and what income are we getting from it? Um, because there are things that, like, no, you know, stakeholders never want to turn anything off.
0: Sure, sure. I, I, it's interesting, and this is just sort of dumb coincidence. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about microservices today. Um, you know, I, I read through some of your things and you say, look, you know, it's it's not as simple as just having a, a monolith because, you know, you do have these other dependencies and, and there's frequency, but you saw a distinct value in, um, you know, in, in doing it this way, being able to make changes. Um, I, I bring this up because this morning I, I saw a tweet that was sort of floating around, um, from some i think it was from, from some folks at, at uber or was a talk from uber where you know back in like 2016 they said we're going to have you know thousands of microservices and, and now they're sort of coming back and going boy that makes life sort of complicated when you, you have so <laughs> many things going on um you know for for anybody that's you know kind of in this space maybe they're in the same uh, situation that, that you were where you're going hey our business is changing um we think in theory there's a distinct goodness to having you know uh, maybe smaller sets of services or things that we can change more frequently. Um, and, it, and they said, hey, look, what are some tips or some things that we should absolutely do on the first day or not do on day one that, that you know, you're looking back, you go, I'm glad we did this or I really wish we hadn't done that.
1: Mm. So, yeah, it's really interesting. There's a, there's definitely conversations at the moment about we've gone back from microservices to the monolith. I, I think the, the key thing is having decoupled architectures, mm-hmm you have to be able to make small changes and know that it hasn't impacted something else and d- microservices give you that because it's very very hard to bleed across um those boundaries but of course people have distributed monoliths where there's a bunch of microservices but you have to release four of them at the same time right. which is clearly means they're not they're not independent i think that um often when you when people start talking about our oh, microservices didn't work when you dig into it the architecture's not decoupled and we've we've certainly changed with our some of our systems, we've combined things back together. we've we've changed the way we approach stuff. So I think it's perfectly fine to to do that. I, I think in terms of what made it what made it work for us, it's it's things like tracing. so we we started building microservices before things like Zipkin existed. We started using containers before um, service meshes existed. but we built some other things that that represent that. so we the ability to trace, an event through all of the systems that it's passing through, through all of the services, and see that as, was essential. It's the one thing that let us operate the systems that we've built, is the ability to say, right, I'm going to see every single thing that happened as part of processing this request to view an article, no matter which system it was in. That that was essential. Uh, I think that having... Um, so we haven't done the approach that, say, uh, Mon- Monzo have done, where they have got a very common format for all of their microservices it's all the same language it's all through the same pipeline it's it's basically put this code in a box and and release it we haven't done that we've got a lot more variety but we have said this is what we expect from you we expect you to have a health check that produces json in this format yeah that's that's something we we expect you to do we expect you to call the change API so that we know that a change has been released we expect you to refer to everything using the system code a unique code so we can tie it back together and that lets us do things like say okay here's an s3 bucket it's related to this system we know that this system contains personal data is the is the bucket public we should probably lock that down so so it's that basic what we expect of you if you're building a microservice
0: yeah so it's almost more um so somewhere between, like, good habits and best practices as opposed to sort of strict rigid standards for, you know, to narrow down the stack type of thing.
1: Well, that's what we've done. I, I, I've got to say that if I was starting from scratch, I'd probably quite like to just provide a golden path of here is how you can write an app and deploy it. What right. We're not at that point. We we went off into a lots of different ways, which has been a benefit for us in, in lots of ways as well. But you have to have some level of expectations. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I think that's that's great. And I think the the reality is, uh, you know, having having been on uh, on the vendor side and, and dealing with, for example, like all the changes and new stuff that that comes into the CNCF. You know, no matter what stack you give people, at some point. Something newer and shinier always comes out and they go, oh, well, maybe we should, you know, we should dump the old thing and get the new thing. And then all of a sudden you're like, all right, now I'm supporting seven things instead of six or 12 instead of 10. um, So, yeah, I I can definitely see both both sides of it. Sarah, I'm going to wrap it up with that. Um, This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, kind of sharing, uh, like you said, what, what works well, what doesn't work well, but really, you know, kind of that transparency, um, that's been, you know, it's allowed you to be, to be successful. Um, if, if people want to kind of reach out to you, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, we, we got to know you through the folks at O'Reilly, unfortunately their conference is canceled. So folks won't see Mm -hmm. you speaking live, but, um, if people want to reach out, maybe pick your brain, um, what maybe are some good ways that they can, they can engage you, or maybe, you know, you, you may be speaking at other types of things in the future.
1: Uh well, so the best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter. I'm Sarah J. Wells. Um, that's that's generally a good way to get in touch. or um, That's probably the best thing. Okay, very good. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get that in the show notes as well as some other things that, uh, that Sarah and her team have, have published out there. So with that, Sarah, again, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, folks, as always, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you telling a friend about the show and helping us grow and uh, giving us feedback and ratings on things like iTunes and others. So with that, we're going to wrap it up and we will talk to you next week.